Weirdo bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies. This is Sandra. And this is Scott. And we have, well, this is kind of a little bit unusual, but we have another fantasy episode for you. Yes, we do. And it's a sequel. And I've been so excited for this book. We were given um, a really wonderful, magical opportunity to read this book. And we jumped on it because we loved the first one so much. And that would be Sea Witch Rising by Sarah Henning, our dear, dear friend, Sarah Henning, who we love so much. Sarah Henning, who we have a wonderful interview with in our last episode uh, regarding the the, the first book, Sea Witch, she's just a great person. And, you know, the first book, at least, a great author. And we're going to talk about the second book here in just a second. <laughs> um, so welcome back, everybody. This is, uh, well, it hasn't been that long since we recorded, but I guess there's been a lot going on. It's been an insane heat wave. It's been triple digits here, and I've been, like, dying, and it's disgusting. Um I have, and because of all of that, haven't really done a whole lot of taking in of genre things because um, I've mostly just been like laying here in a puddle reading. Yeah, I really haven't either. I mean, I finished the Orville at least the the, the end of the second season, which is how much they've made. Nice. Other than that, um, nothing really myself either. I've fallen really behind on horror movies to a degree that is frankly unacceptable. <laughs> so I really, really, really need to get back on it. Hey, moving will do that to you. It like just exhausts you to the point where it's like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to watch anything. I just want to stare at my really nice purple walls in my living room. <laughs> and they are really nice. It's something about it. The routine is just completely thrown off as well. Yes. Even when I'm not tired, it's just, it's just the routine is completely different than what it used to be. And I'm still getting really confused. Like sometimes when I'm, I'm like in the shower or like in bed and like, I'm confused about like, I think I'm in my old house for a minute and I get really thrown off. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, waking up in the middle of the night sometimes, like, where am I? This is not a ceiling I recognize, <laughs> but my glowing stars have helped quite a bit. You gotta have glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. It reminds me so much of my childhood. I had them when I was a kid, and I was like, I want glow-in-the-dark stars in our new place, now that we don't have popcorn ceilings. Oh, yeah, popcorn <laughs> ceilings. So let's talk about the Sea Witch duology a little bit. So we had that great interview with Sarah. We read the first book. We loved it. It was um, it was huge for me, but it was even more huge for Scott. Scott was absolutely obsessed with the first book. I loved the first book so much. It it meant so much to me. I thought it was the best fairy tale retelling that I, I've read. And it, it's, it really has stuck with me even to this day as just being one of my favorite books. Yeah. And so then, so happy that Sarah wrote another one. And this is a duology. I I do not believe we're going to get any more books set in the Sea Witch world. I do. You think so? I do. I think we are. I, I do. Okay. I think there's room for more. Well, there might be room for more, but does that mean it's going to happen? Well, I don't think there needed to be a second book. So, so I mean, there doesn't need to be a third book, but I think that there is room for it. I, I can see... I could see Sarah really finding a, a place to to make this a trilogy if she really wanted to. 
<laughs> well, I think we'll be here for it if that's the case. So, Sea Witch was the first book, which chronicled uh, the life of Evie, who was a witch on land and had kind of a tragic story with her best friend, and then ends up kind of having a romance with the soon-to-be king, I guess the crown prince, and there's this other kind of rakish guy in there, and everything really just kind of goes to hell pretty quick. Now, granted, we're going to be talking about spoilers for the first book, because this is a sequel. So if you haven't read it, you probably should if you want to keep listening to the episode. Okay? I think that that's fair. I also think that the the spoilers from the first book are not... I think this book stands alone in a way. I do too, but obviously we're going to talk about events yeah, of the first book. Absolutely. So like, that's that's what I'm saying. I just think it's really cool because I think that you could read this book without reading the first book and would oh, yeah, they totally, yeah, they, totally get on board. They definitely do a really good job of recapping everything for you. So after the events of the first book, this sequel takes place 50 years later, I think. About... Yeah. yeah. And so quite a lot has changed. Um, Evelyn, Evie, is now the sea witch, and she merged with the giant great octopus, and she has her little place under the sea. It was a squid, actually. It's a giant squid. No, it's an octopus. Which I didn't remember either, because she had... Um, it's an octopus. Is it an octopus? Oh, it's 100% an octopus. Because there was some... Okay, there... Hmm. No, you're like totally crazy because we love octopuses so much and we talked about it in the first one, the grand great black octopus. Yes. Yeah, no, it's See, I thought, and she talks about I had remembered octopus. it being an octopus, but then yeah. there were some descriptions of, of some sort of uh squid like like tentacles well, that I mean she's kinda her own thing. Yeah. Well yeah, she is. <laughs> that's 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 true. She's kind of her own species now. But anyway, so she's living under the sea and she's been doing that for uh quite a few decades. And she, you know, she gave up everything for love. And this is where she's at. And she's kind of scary to people because um, she's quite an intimidating figure and a magic worker. Uh, people come to her, mer people come to her for things. Um, her love, Nicholas, visited her at the, the shore every day until he died, which is so sweet and like so heartbreaking in like a wonderful mariner's tale sort of way. So she's uh, she's lonely. She's stuck there. The Sea King won't let her leave her lair. So she has her, her little polypus uh, garden that she talks to, her beautiful, wonderful, creepy garden of souls and bones. But uh, this is a new adventure, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the plot. Above the sea, Runa's twin sister, Alia, is about to die. According to the deal Alia made with the Sea Witch, she has only hours left as a human to win her prince's love or perish. But Runa knows the prince isn't capable of the love her sister needs, so she makes her own bargain with the sea witch, the prince's life for her sisters, and prepares to bring Alia back under the sea, whether she likes it or not. Below the waves, Evie has spent decades dwelling on the events that turned her into the sea witch, long enough to formulate a plan to save herself from a murky fate. But challenging the order of the sea will take power she doesn't yet have, but will do anything to get. Can she gather the magic elements she'll need before the politics above and below the sea collide? As Runa and Evie's fates intertwine and they find themselves caught in the middle of a deadly conflict between land and sea, will they be brave enough to sacrifice their own heart's desires for a chance to save their worlds? And the story is told from alternating perspectives of the two ladies. So, I think before we give our experience score... Before? 
we need to talk about how absolutely beautiful this book is. Oh, man, the cover. Oh, my God. So The s- cover. Same artist who did the first one did the second one, and she is absolutely amazing. I'm trying to find her name right now. Uh, we will put it in the show notes because yeah. I'm having trouble locating it. I believe she she's definitely mentioned in the acknowledgments as well. I want prints of her work. Oh, she's incredible. It's it's beautiful. The colors and just the the illustration itself. So let me kind of describe it for you. Paint a little picture. First of all, when you take off the dust jacket, it's a beautiful royal purple. And the uh, writing on the spine is like the perfect like light bronzy color. So pretty. But uh, the front is two women's faces. Um... Who are these two? It's kind of up to interpretation. I think they're Runa and Evie, personally. I, I think they're they're Runa and Alia. Oh, see? I mean, up to interpretation, like I said. But um, it's really purple in hue. It looks like it's under the water. It's got that same beautiful pinky bronzy tint. It's got the purple octopus tentacles uh, twining around everything. One of the girls has, like, golden eyes. One of them has purple eyes. She has eyebrows for days. <laughs> uh, the purple lips. It and the back of it, it's like all black, and it looks like the light refracted through the water's surface. These books are breathtaking. You know, having a good cover on a book is really important. It, it draws you in in the bookstore. It draws you in online when you're looking at it. And, uh, you know, Sarah's writing definitely has a lot to do with the word of mouth and the success of these books. But mm-hmm. that cover has a lot to do with people picking it up for the first time. Oh, yeah. And, and very successful. So cover artist Anna Dittman, or Dittman, D-I-T-T-M-A-N-N. Look her up. She's amazing. So Yeah, I, I'm going to have to see if we can get prints of her work. Of like everything she's ever created. Basically, yeah. Um, Scott, I'm going to let you start, and why don't you give us your experience score for Sea Witch Rising? Okay. Well, uh, just like the first book, I read this book while I was camping by the water and fishing which is kind of a unfair advantage that Sarah gets because it just really gets me in the mood one to read and two to read this kind of book. I was really worried about the sequel because I loved the first one so much. I have lent uh, I've lent our copy out to multiple people plus you know we I think I've probably purchased that f- first book. Let's see we purchased on Kindle. We purchased the regular version. I Two or three times, we sent one to uh, another young one that we know. It it meant a lot to me, is what I'm trying to say. So mm-hmm. I was afraid that this one wouldn't live up. It does. Mm-hmm. This gets the same score as the first book. Absolutely obsession. I read this book in one day while I was camping, which means I was bypassing going out on the boat and fishing to read this book. Absolutely obsessed in love with it. Fantastic. Well, very well said. Um, I agree. I actually think, I mean, I hate to compare because obviously I love the first book and we couldn't have the second book without it. But I think I liked this more than the first one. Um, it's, um, it's 393 pages too, I believe. So I think is longer than Sea Witch. Is it? It felt shorter. Oh, to me, it did actually feel a bit 
longer. But anyway, regardless, again, they go hand in hand. I'm not really trying to compare them, but I do think I had a better experience reading this sequel, even though I absolutely loved the first. So that's really telling. It was definitely, for me, an absolute page turner. I was so happy with this book. I was so happy with the two perspectives. I was worried that... um you know, because I love Evie, and I, w- I was worried that I'm like, oh, I- maybe I'm going to get annoyed at another perspective because I just want to stick with Evie, but I didn't. I really, really liked Runa. I thought she was incredible. Um, I liked her right away, but I mean, she really grew on me. I totally loved her. thought she was amazing. I thought that the stakes were um, even more elevated than in the first one. I thought the magic was more magical. <laughs> I thought the sea was more shimmering and murky. I thought the stuff going up on land was a lot of the book takes place on land too. And and that was like really kind of unexpected and where and the kind of journey that they take up there was completely unexpected to me. And um I really think that it shows not only Sarah is a great fantasy writer, I mean, she's the queen of the mermaids, in my opinion, but she's also a great kind of historical fiction, historical fantasy writer. I have to agree with you. I do think that this book overall is is a better book. Um, with some distance, Sea Witch has a little bit of a direction thing with it where I didn't know exactly where it was going when I was reading it. Partially because it was a retelling, a reimagining, but but also a prequel in a way that I didn't know, you know, who was going to be the sea witch. I didn't know who was really the main character, who was really the ingenue. I only knew whose perspective it was in until kind of towards the end, which actually I loved about it. Mm-hmm. But it was it was just a very different type of book. This one is tighter. Mm-hmm. It has a little bit more of a. Uh, razor honed direction to it Mm -hmm. i knew what the characters motivations were from the get-go i knew where they wanted to go very quickly in the book and i think that that served the story in this case very very well okay no i i think that every good writer is gonna evolve their process um and what they put out with each book and i i think that she challenged herself to make an even better novel and that she really really did still cannot wait to read i think it's called throw like a girl throw like a girl which is gonna be her like really contemporary feminist baseball uh like book coming out i think next year Uh, according to her twitter it comes out january of next year Oh, well, perfect. It'll be like one of my first books I read of the year then. (laughs) Still can't wait for that. So um, we've kind of talked about Sarah's writing and just really how incredible and impressive it is. Uh, But just to kind of add a little bit more, I I think her sense of place and atmosphere is so incredible. She paints you the most beautiful watercolor picture of like where you are and what the characters are doing and what they're experiencing. And it all feels very true. It all feels very real. Like, I mean, I can't believe that Evie's lair is not a real place with the pewter sand. She talks about the pewter. And I could just, I could see it. I could see it so clearly. Um, Lots of absolutely wonderful feminist uh you know, things in this book. The characters are really their own ladies and they're strong. She's just, she's good. Sarah Henning's a good writer. She's a great writer and she has a real knack for really strong, complicated women. Runa, I love 
in this story. And it was going to, you said it yourself, it was going to be really hard for me to get into someone else's perspective other than Evie. And Runa stepped up to the plate and and defied all expectations and just ended up being a great, lovable, root for kind of character that I really liked her perspective. I really liked her her emotional growth. It was just a really good, just just a really fun person to follow. Well, and two, I guess we're kind of talking about characters then at this point. Uh, with Evie, she's had some growth. I mean, in a lot of ways, she's very stuck because of, you know, kind of her basic imprisonment and the choices she's made. But at the same time, she is growing and she is changing. And, um, you know, in the first novel and in our interview with Sarah, we talked about how the sea witch in the original fairy tale, which is, of course, you know, The Little Mermaid is a really, really different thing than the Disney movie. Um, she is more of a neutral character and she's not like evil. And in this one, we know Evie, we love Evie, we know Evie isn't evil. <laughs> so, um, Nothing about that changed either. She has her ambitions. She has her plans. She's a realist from everything she's been through, but she um, acts with the best of intentions towards people. Yeah, rest assured, uh, Evie is still herself. She's grown. She's changed. She She's made some new decisions about how she goes about things. But at the end of the day, she hasn't turned into Ursula from <laughs> the from Disney's Little Mermaid. She is still the Evie you know and love. Oh, absolutely. Very happy with that. Uh, we got a new character in here, too, besides when we talked about Runa. We got a couple new characters. We get Alia, the Little Mermaid, <laughs> essentially, yes. um, who is really the idealistic, naive... Um, <sighs> you know, just wants to be in love, is in love, and uh, kind of, like, can't really see any negative outcome. She's like, no, this is going to be it. This is my prince. I found him. I'm in love, and I'm doing this. But at the same time, she's not vapid. She's not horrible or annoying or anything, and she goes on a bit of a journey herself. She's a bit of a romantic. Definitely. We also get to meet um, some people up on the land, which is really cool because... Remember, in the first book, we learned all the fallouts of magic, and there was, like, real things in history, you know, that reflected that, of how anybody, especially females, who... <laughs> <laughs> who were basically powerful or were any sort of like magical workers or, you know, witches and they were burned and everything. So now this is 50 years later, we're seeing the effects of where history has taken us and it's taken us to World War One era, uh, still Denmark. I did not see that coming. Yeah, because it makes sense in her timeline of where we would be and what's going on in the world up above. They still don't know about merfolk, but um, th th there's a lot. The world has really changed up there. I, I thought that setting it in that time period was really a stroke of genius because yeah. it really was a tipping point for the world. Mm -hmm. And it was it was the real moment when the world changed. I don't want to sound punny, but, but, but Runa is a fish out of water. <laughs> and like, she's quite literally is too, because not only is she a mer person, but she's also like from a place where they, they have magic and they don't have technology. And so she's, you know, like if you think about where the world was in World War One, there was already, you know, 
film had been like invented and you know like there was a lot there's a big boom in technology and the way people dressed there was automobiles electricity it's so much has changed and so it's um i love history as i've said on here before i'm a big fan of history and i love it when history can feel very relevant and um fresh and like you can imagine yourself being there and just being who you are right now but just in a different time and place. And I think she did a really fantastic job with the history setting. So let's give our appeals before we go into spoilers. Um, I mean, this is like, I mean, uh, I'm going to go first because I think I'm going to be a little bit more strict than you. Okay. Here's my thing. I love this book. I've recommended this book to a ton of people. And like everybody I've recommended it to has liked it. However, there are still people that I would not immediately recommend this book for. Not because of anything wrong with the book, but because of things wrong with the people. No, no, but because it is still quite fantastical. And, you know, everybody doesn't like fantasy. And everybody does not like this type of fantasy. So I'm still going to go with broad. I'm not going to go mass because I don't think a lot of non-genre folks would get this unless they are mermaid fans. And there's, I think that there's been a lot of people who probably don't read fantasy, but who do like mermaids or who grew up or fell in love with the Little Mermaid uh, movie. And so then they gravitated towards this and it might have converted them to a little bit more of a fantasy fan. But I do still think you need to have a love for fantasy to um, appreciate this book. I'm torn on my appeal score. Um, I don't remember what I gave Sea Witch, but I think that whatever I gave it, retrospectively, I think that it is a mass appeal book. Um, because the first one, if you have any knowledge of The Little Mermaid, being a prequel, you can you can kind of shape it around your own memory of your whatever your memory of the little mermaid is whether it be the ballet whether it be disney it, it fits grims oh no uh, hans christian anderson yes cut that hans christian anderson <laughs> i know my shit hans christian anderson's the little mermaid i think i'm also going to give this book abroad i think that this does fall more strongly into um into fantasy as opposed to a, a prequel retelling. I think that this follows the Hans Christian Andersen version much, much more because it actually takes place during the Hans Christian Andersen uh, version, the original version. Uh, I think that there is, while there is definitely some some references and throws to the Disney version, uh, which I highlighted everyone awesome. and laughed so hard. Me too. I do think that you need to have more than just the Disney experience of The Little Mermaid to really uh, uh, dive into this, to really get everything that you that that you would want to out of this. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, so there we have it. The first section is done, and when we come back, we're going to talk about spoilers for Sea Witch Rising. Enjoying the show please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. All 
All right, we're back, and we're going to talk about spoilers for this lovely, wonderful, magical, romantic book. Okay, so to say that I did not see some things coming was an understatement. (laughs) I really had no idea that we were going to spend so much time on land and during, you know, like (laughs) World War I, basically. Like, that was a total and complete surprise, completely brilliant, and... I was really, really happy with Runa's time up there. I was super happy that she found love while she was up there. And I liked um I liked Sophie. I liked what's what's the handmaid's nail? Aligata? I don't remember. I'm gonna look it up. I don't want to remember. I did not she, like that character. She had a redemption arc. Yeah, kind of. She was kind of forced into a re- redemption arc. She was because no one would take her. She tried to d- betray them like four times, and no. finally, by the fourth time, they're like, "Well, no, we're you're, we don't accept that." And she's like, "Well, I guess I guess I'll be a witch then." <laughs> well, you know, maybe she's got more to tell. But I mean, it was Agnata. Um, more that, to tell. That's not a story I want to read. Well, fine. <laughs> um, I really, really liked will i liked will too he's a he's a really well written wizard male character (laughs) and wizard yes um i like that he was playing a role just like runa was up uh up in the castle when all that was going down but really he had all this other stuff going on underneath the surface um i liked that a lot of stuff he had to say about how society was changing and it was getting away from you know kingdoms and into (laughs) democracy and modern life and because that's a transition i find really fascinating especially in european history you know around the turn of the first century when it was like you know, we're kind of like Downton Abbey stuff where it's like, you know, you're not like my lord and my lady and everyone's bowing and sweeping. You have absolute power and riches and whatnot. It's like, no, people are kind of getting over that and they're kind of rising up against this stuff. Yet royalty is on the decline. Technology is on the rise. Mm-hmm. It, and that's that's the, the, the really interesting thing about that time period is that you still have horse and carriage. You still have... Yes. You know... Not you, everybody has an automobile. Exactly. It's a new thing that... And you, they're still using regular ships as well as the new steam and metal ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like the first Sea Witch has kind of a, okay, times are a changing feeling. This one literally is, okay, this is the turning point. This is the cusp yeah. when when the world on land and the world in sea are truly diverging. Well, yeah, because like submersibles were kind of kind of like really, really experimental things back when Evie was a human witch on land. But now it's like everybody's got a (laughs) U-boat and that's the big scary technology because they're going to find the merfolk down there. And um, I mean, really just knowing and seeing what they thwarted in this one really makes you think a lot about like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen during World War II? What's going to happen to merfolk in the 60s? Like, are there still merfolk today? Well, that's what I mean by saying i really do think that there is room for a second book right but i mean it would get incredibly complicated (laughs) the later on it goes well it would and i think i think if there was going to be another book it would have to take place during world war ii i don't think there's any other time where it could take and it would be really the i mean sadly kind of the end of mermaid (laughs) civilization it would be sea witch sea witch descending sea witch declining no um no i think that it would be 
Queen Evie, which, I mean, made me so fucking happy, and I almost cried, and the search for the great city of Atlantis, where she's basically gonna pick up all the merfolk and move them to a real, actual, like, unfindable place or a magical realm, because they can't just be around, and not to mention our oceans are disgustingly polluted, and I I don't want Evie in those nasty, plastic-filled waters. That's it. It takes place now, and there's a wealthy billionaire who who fi- gets a submarine to find them a home and hide them forever before he makes a multi-billion dollar 3D movie about them. <clears throat> <laughs> Oh, that's the God. sequel. That's, no. that's the third book. I will be there. Prote- I will protest that. Sarah, don't you do it. Don't you do- Don't uh, you give in to that, man. I like your idea better. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm so happy with Evie's journey in this book, like we talked about. She's still herself, and she still goes through some stuff, but um, she comes out so victorious, and she becomes the queen. She becomes the queen. She went from someone who could never be on land with the royalty, with the royal dude that she loved because she was a witch and a peasant, to now she's the freaking queen of the mermaids. And it's really impressive to have a character like Evie, who has such a strong character growth in the first book, have have a true character arc in the second one as well. You know, when it starts with this book, she there's a selfishness about her. Uh, when she sends Alia up to the land, she's doing it, you know, because she thinks she's doing a good thing or the right thing, but really she's doing it kind of vicariously for herself. She's trying to give her something that she never got because because of, of her own hangups. Well, I, I don't know that, like, the thing she does for Alia is, I would, like, classify it as selfish, though. I, I think that there's a selfishness to it. First of all, she asks for her voice so that she can talk to Anna again. Yeah, but she she believes in love, and Alia lies to her. Well, and, she does, yes. And says, like, no, this is real, and this is going to happen. And she's like, oh, okay, girl, go get it. Like, you know, kind of, you know, like, of course she has her motivations, and, you know, being in prison for 50 years with, like, no one to talk to, except for the occasional mer person who comes by to make deals, Um I, I, it's going to make someone have questionable motives sometimes. Oh, absolutely. But she um, she really thought she was helping her, though. Oh, I, I see. And that's kind of the, it's kind of a, a psychology sort of thing. She thought that she was helping her. Absolutely. And, and in a way she was. But she was also blinded by her own experience. The reason she really did it. She really didn't see through the lies. She really didn't ask more questions. And she she went ahead with it is because of her own selfish experiences. And what she asked was a selfish ask. The same thing with with Runa. She sent her up there because she wanted Alia to live. She wanted Alia to succeed. And she wanted to give Runa the opportunity to save her sister. But again, what she asked for was purely for her own benefit. So she could kind of she could justify what she was doing in, in a selfless way, but in a lot of ways, she does start the book a little selfish. Now, by the end, she really becomes a selfless person, truly, again, uh, when she gets the crown. 
And she she truly says, if you'll have me, I will serve you. There's a tagline on the front of the book, sisterhood is the strongest magic. And there's a lot of themes of sisterhood in this. Of course, Runa and Alia are twins. Um, you guys know, and I've mentioned this before, I love sibling stuff, especially sister things, because I'm super close to my older sister, Amanda, friend of the show, who might be making an appearance very, very soon. Hint, hint, spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love this idea that when it came to murdering Nicholas, uh, you know, like, she had to do it for her sister. And because, like, when I think about it, and this sounds horrible, but I would never murder anybody, right? But I'd certainly never murder anybody for myself. The, the, the stretchiest stretch of imagining myself murdering somebody would be for my sister. Yeah. And so it's like, I get it. And I get, like, her drive. And all the sisters were in on it and totally like we got to get her back we got to help her but um that really it's like there's such a tandem and i especially liked that she was like you know kind of a younger sister too in the in the twins like obviously they're twins but there was you know ones that are older than them it wasn't like just the big older sister who goes to save she's like no I i'm gonna do this she's like the the really like strong one out of the group too like you can tell they all kind of follow runa she's a leader which makes sense why now she's gonna be a rebel did did you did you have a little bit of hope that she was going to be successful when she kissed Alia? Well, of course, and I think that that was one of those kind of fan service things that Sarah did for all of us. I was expecting a frozen moment. Yeah, I really was. Where she, I feel like Sarah did this great job of ruling out a lot of things that we all have talked about not only with the little mermaid but like with the first book too like okay there's a clause too she can't write it out like she can't you know write out what's going on yeah uh alia can't and it's like thank you because everybody's like okay ariel can sign her name on like the contract so she knows how to write why isn't she writing when she's up there well she can't and you know like other there i'm failing to think of the references right now but there was a few things where it was like oh see that's that's why and that's why that happens and that's how that happens and okay she was like no i'm gonna just do the fan service and clear up all of these weird little like plot loopholes holes. yeah L little little contract loopholes that are that are in there and i like that that runa's runa when she was trying to become a mermaid again had this whole thing in her head like okay well maybe this one thing okay technically alia didn't technically kill nick but you know i did it for her so maybe yeah. maybe the deal will be struck and we didn't actually get an answer on whether or not that would have worked or not because she decided to not to not go through with it and 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 stay a human but uh, there there's so many contract loopholes that are closed in in this book that i yeah. really appreciate sarah obviously has thought about all of those same things that we have um speaking of the magic i i really like the magic in general i like that um there's still witches on the land I like that, uh, you know, the sea is alive and well with magic, but I like that, you know, kind of the big stuff, it's all contracts. And as we know, and as from the first one, magic always comes with a price. And there's the trade aspect, because that's kind of true in life, right? Like things are a give and take and a compromise and a trade. And and as they like to say, Erda must be satisfied. Um, and I like that that is 
a big kind of condition of the magic in these books is that there's always a, a bill to be paid and the magic needs to be satisfied. Yeah. And there's a simplicity to the magic as well, partially because of the the equal trade that is involved in it, but also that it's not, you know, some arcane magic symbols that you, you know, make with your fingers or or write on a wall. It's, you know, it's either a contract or or imposing your will mm-hmm. through words of power. Real yeah. words of power. Like just just, you know, in that language, fire yeah. creates fire or sleep put someone to sleep. <laughs> sleep. It's not sleep. A, there's no magic word. It's just it's just putting forth your will on the world. You didn't sleep sleep with me. Sleep. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Sleep. Everybody sleep. everybody knows that video. Everybody loves that one. Any chance you can reference it is a good good time you need to take it. See, I don't think I don't find it very funny. I don't get why people find it funny. I think it's cool. I would absolutely play that. I I let's have move. I have played that. Let's move on. <laughs> um <laughs> So, uh, up on the land, uh, some of the, the friends we meet, Sophie and um, Christine. Um, I like that Sophie uh, had a lot of layers. She had a lot going on. You know, we really all thought she was the betrayer. Nah, she's totally loyal. That was Zagnata, and she worked with it, and it was such a cool reveal that she wasn't a traitor. Um she was complicated. She was kind of selfish and haughty, you know, like H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, because she was, you know, a comtesse and all that. But at the same time, she wanted to do the right thing. And she was really brave. So I, I really enjoyed her. I, I really enjoyed her place in this book as being, you know, sometimes her and Runa did butt heads, but ultimately, they were a team. Yeah, I think that I think that she is Sarah's greatest achievement in this book because it's really you know it, it's it's really easy to write the the fiance the the not ma- the not the, the one who loses the prince at the end of a lot of the the disney versions of stories to write her as being kind of the the inadvertent bad guy and it was such a great twist to have her be no she's she's an ally she yeah. was manipulating the king from the very get-go she's a good guy yeah. And that was really great to read. And she did have like this kind of love and stuff for him. It was just really, really interesting. It was complicated. She's very complicated. Yeah. I liked all that. And I really liked Christine, too. We didn't, you know, have a huge amount of screen time, so to speak, with Christine. But, um, you know, I, as much as I love all these merfolk, I myself am not a mer creature. <laughs> I am not a sea creature. I am a land dweller, <laughs> like, to, to my core. So, uh, I love the earthy magic and getting kind of back to that, like, in the first book and even more so, where it's like we have, you know, our grimoires, which I love a good grimoire. I love a bad grimoire. And, you know, the stones and using the stones and the powers of the earth. Um, I totally dug that because as much as I love getting swept up and pretending that I'm a mermaid, at the end of the day, I know I'm a land witch. And so it was nice to see my people represented. And see, I am absolutely a sea wizard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's his own phrasing that has just developed over time. Right? Like they were all calling him witch one day and he's like, you know what, guys? Um, I'm a wizard, actually. And so the first time he gets a chance, he's like, hey, I'm Will. I'm a 
lizard. And it's like, <laughs> well, you're a witch. It's fine. Just yeah, be a witch. It, it, just be a witch. But uh, I am definitely a sea witch. I I I like their magic a lot better. It it rings more true to me. Uh, I the magic is inside of you. You don't need to connect through a stone. No, but but seriously, I. Uh, that that uh, fire and ice you and i sure something like that um all right well i guess having talked about how much we love this book i don't think our execution scores are gonna be a big surprise but i'm gonna start anyway okay so i'm gonna give this it has to be it has to be out of eight tentacles right okay yeah <laughs> oh but that's really complicated eight i can't rethink eight Oh, sure you can. It's kind of a made-up score anyway. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say I'm going to give this seven tentacles out of eight. Okay. Um, I am super, super happy with it. Um, You know, and I am counting maybe that little tip, the little tip of the tentacle <laughs> that got cut off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, how awesome was Grandma, by the way? Grandma oh, kicks ass. Th- their first scene together was so awesome this wizard's duel this crazy wizard's duel and just be like yeah yeah we're cool what's up we had to put <laughs> up a, a farce anyway um definitely seven out of eight tentacles i love where this book went i love where it took us i love the journey of the characters i still am so 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 loyal to evie and i adore her but runa really gave her a run for her money uh with somebody who was just capturing my heart i was so happy that she made the decision to become a human to pursue love and to pursue magic and to pursue fighting the good fight up on the land is really brave warrior rebel chick without ever starting out that way she just started out wanting to do something right to save her sister uh absolute home run accomplishment by Sarah, who is a brilliant writer and definitely is going to be one of our auto-buy authors forever. A hundred percent. She is an auto-buy. I, you know, our execution score, you know, we, we, we play around with it, but we try to make it kind of the one somewhat objective score that we give out. I can't be objective with this book. I love this book so much. I love both books so much. I love it as one story. I love it on its own. Um, The justification that I'm going to give for giving it eight tentacles out of eight is that not only is this an excellent sequel that improves upon the original, I think that it is perfect as a standalone novel. You could pick this book up and read it having never read Sea Witch, and you would enjoy it, and it wouldn't even feel like a sequel. And then you could go read Sea Witch afterwards to make it richer. You could read these two books in either order, and that's special, and that's rare. And I think that the two of them are needed to complete themselves. I eight tentacles out of eight. I just I love it to death. I'm completely unobjective on it because I just I, I love it. Well, there you have it, everybody. Another successful fantasy read for us that we absolutely loved and don't really have anything bad to say about. Because you know what? Sometimes you just love something and it just works and you don't and even okay want to nitpick to it. it. It's just okay to yeah. love it. It's okay to nitpick the things you love. It's also okay to not nitpick the things you love. So join us soon. We're gonna have some really, really 
really special content coming up, some really exciting things, and of course, Halloween is right around the corner, which means we're going to be all horror all, all the, the time. time. All right, everybody, take care. Thank you for listening, and please keep reading past your bedtime. Thank you.